0: Thank you, Diane, for sharing with us. Our next speaker has come from Cleveland, Ohio, and his name is Jim. I thank you and good afternoon. It is wonderful to be here. My name is Jim, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, California, and thank you for introducing me to California AA this week. There's an affection, an enthusiasm, a warmth here that I have not known anyplace else in AA, and I appreciate it. I'm from the Independence Group, and it's so named because it's in a little town near Cleveland called Independence, Ohio. But that name Independence has always meant something much more to me than just The fact that it was in the town of Independence, I always felt it was a good name for an AA group, no matter what town it was in. I uh, have never been the the getaway talker at uh, a conference or a meeting of any kind, and I had no idea what it was going to be like to sit and listen to all of those wonderful speakers, knowing you had to do it yet. And then the show last night, and Anna Maria Alberghetti, and I would probably make about as much impression on you now as I would if I got up here and sang Viderci Roma. <laughs> I heard a man who was the, the last speaker at a very good conference a couple of months ago in Georgia, a friend of mine from Chicago named Paul M., And he said that day he felt like Elizabeth Taylor's next husband. He he, he knew what was expected of him, but he sure as hell didn't know how to make it interesting.
1: (laughs) And, And that's exactly the way I feel today.
0: I couldn't help but think in the last few days and looking around this hotel with all of the construction and redecorating going on, what a wonderful job they've done for us uh, here. I have even, not even been aware that, you know, there was any work going on. It also occurred to me, can you imagine what kind of a redecorating job we could do on this hotel <laughs> if we all decided to have a slip on the same day? I remember a story they told up in Toronto at the International ten years ago at a hotel where they had about 3,000 AAs registered. Every bed had an AA in it. And a traveling salesman wandered into that scene. He had stayed in that hotel on other occasions, and he wandered in. He'd never seen it so full, and he saw groups of people standing around talking and laughing and drinking coffee, and it was jammed. And they couldn't give him a room, and he said to the manager, who he knew, what's going on here? The manager said, "Why well, this is a convention of Alcoholics Anonymous." Said, "I have three thousand AAs. Every bed in this hotel is occupied by an AA." The traveling salesman said, "I've heard about AA. Does it really work?" And he said, "Oh God, I hope so." I'd be willing to bet the manager of this hotel, if he w- hasn't before been a praying man, is now, probably. <laughs> I normally do not tell jokes uh, when I talk at an AA meeting, but having heard Harold and Joe and Clancy and having become aware of the last few days of the standard of humor that is evidently acceptable at this roundup, I, uh, I thought I might try one, even if it's not funny, it might mean something else to you, because it always has to me. It's it's kind of a significant joke. It was about two fellas talking about a mutual friend. And the one said, did you hear about Bill? And the other said, no, what happened? And he said he died. And the other fellow said, that's a shame, such a young man. What did he die from? And the other one said he died of acute alcoholism. And the other one said, that really is a shame in this day and age with help so readily available.
1: I wonder why he didn't get into AA.
0: And the other fellow said, oh, he wasn't that bad. (laughs) The the reason that story has always been significant to me is because I could have been any one of the fellows in that joke. At some time in my life, any one of them, I could have been the one that died of acute alcoholism. I had every other symptom. I just didn't die from it. I could have been the one who said he wasn't that bad because there was a time in my life when I felt that going to other people or consulting someone else, looking for help, Not doing it myself was a fate worse than death. I really felt that way. Anybody else. And I would rather have died than told people, anybody else, some of the things that I had done and said and thought and the way I felt. And, of course, the last 14, almost 15 years, I could have been the other man in the story who knew, who knew that help was readily... I don't know when I became an alcoholic. I started to drink when I was 17. I thought it was kind of the grown-up thing to do, I guess. And I drank until I was 34. I drank 17 years, and somewhere along the line, I became an alcoholic. I don't know when. I don't care when anymore. But that question bothered me when I first came into this program. Bothered me for a couple of years. I heard people talk about crossing an invisible line between social drinking and problem drinking. And I wondered when I had done that, because I thought of myself as having been a social drinker.
1: And I wanted to
0: know when I crossed the line and became a trouble drinker, a problem drinker. And I couldn't figure it out. There was a a while there where I had a date all picked out that I thought maybe was it, but it, it turned out. I started, you know, my memory cleared up, and I started remembering things back before that, I remembered some here. Somebody mentioned Vallejo, California to me the other day. I had my first alcoholic blackout in Vallejo, California, and I was 19 years old in the service. And I had forgotten that until somebody mentioned it. The symptoms were there then. and I didn't know when I became an alcoholic. And my sponsors, and I had several of them at Independence Group, I needed several, I guess, and everybody claimed to be my sponsor or wanted to be uh, in some way, and I let them all And they kept saying, don't worry about that. The answer to that question is unimportant. And I thought to myself, I didn't say it, because they told me to keep my mouth shut and my ears open. And so I didn't say it. But I thought to myself, well, that's easy for you to say. It's not bugging you. Of course it's not important to you. But I didn't think these guys could tell me what was important to me. It did bug me, and I wanted the answer. And maybe the quest for that answer and a number of other answers helped me in a way because it caused me to read a lot, which I might not have done otherwise. And I kept reading our literature, reading other things, other books, trying to find the answer to questions like, when did I become an alcoholic? And then I went to our, we have a luncheon group in Cleveland where we limit the speaker to 20 minutes because everybody has to get back to work. And a lawyer stood up and talked one day about when he became an alcoholic. And that's all he talked about. And he looked at me, looked me right in the eye through that whole meeting, as if he'd been reading my mind. And he didn't know either when he became an alcoholic, but it had bothered him. It had troubled him over the years. And he finally said, I heard an illustration once and it helped me. He said, I won't answer it for you, but it might help because it did me. And I've been telling the story ever since. Everybody thinks it's my story now, and it's not. belongs to a lawyer in Cleveland named Joe T. But he said if you take a cucumber and stick it in a barrel of brine and leave it there for some period of time, I think it's about six weeks, it goes through a physical change of some kind, and it becomes an entirely different thing. It becomes a pickle. Everybody knows that. But when? He said, Does it become a pickle the moment you stick it in the brine or the moment before you take it out of the brine? Or at some magic moment, halfway through the aging process, does it cross an invisible line between being a social cucumber and and suddenly become a problem pickle? Now, he said, if you think that's an important question, the next time you're in a grocery store, said, you pick up a jar of pickles and call the man over and say, tell me, my good man, when did these become pickles? And see what kind of answers you get to that question. If he doesn't know, he'll think you're some kind of a nut. And if he does know, he'll think you're back on the sauce. Because it's a stupid question. And that's what Joe proved to me that day. You see, they'd been telling me the answer to that question was unimportant. And what he proved to me was the question itself was unimportant. There was no answer. It was a dumb question, like how high is up? There was no answer and never would be. And I felt better. I thought I don't have to worry about that answer anymore. It's a dumb question. The hell with that one! I'd better get to a, an important question. He reminded us that day that once it's a pickle, it can never go back. Has it ever occurred to you that it's
1: <laughs> it, it,
0: it's impossible to debrine one? There is. Any, anybody can turn a cucumber into a pickle. But there is no process known to science that will make a pickle a cucumber again. When it's a pickle, it's a pickle for life. And that's not bad, it's just different. A pickle has a pretty good personality. lot of people who like pickles better than cucumbers. And I'm one of them.
1: (laughs) I'm supposed to tell
0: you something about the way I drank. If I were to qualify in three words, I've already heard the three words here this weekend, and I would have to choose the same three words, humiliation, degradation, and embarrassment. That's the story of my drinking, those three words. So I won't give you a blow-by-blow description of 17 years of drinking. I'm going to tell you two incidents that are typical of any one of the days during those 17 years. Two incidents because... They're a little different in a way, and I'll try to explain the difference to you. On one of those occasions that I would like to pick out, it was a Saturday. And I did the 11 o'clock news on a television station in Cleveland that night. I got off the air at 11.30. I'd been doing that news for nine years. By 2.30 in the morning, I was laying on the floor of a restaurant on a street in Cleveland called Short Vincent been there, too. Actually, the name of the street is Vincent Street, but everybody calls it Short Vincent. And it's, it's where the joints are. And naturally, that's where I was three hours after I got off the air with the news that night. it's where the swinging people went. And at 2.30 in the morning, I was laying on the floor of the Tasty Barbecue on Short Vincent which is a very small little restaurant, and I don't know what I was doing in there because I wasn't eating much in those days anyway, but I was in there, and I came out of a blackout there, laying on the floor of the Tasty Barbecue, right in front of the main entrance, blocking the entrance, so that as people came in for their chicken and ribs, they had to step over me. (laughs) On Channel 8, and I had been doing it for nine years. Therefore, when these people stepped over me, they did not look down and say, there is a poor, anonymous alcoholic. I remember one fellow looked down and said, that's Jim Doney, isn't it?
1: He says, he does the news on Channel 8. And his girlfriend said, what's new, Jim
0: And I couldn't tell her, because I couldn't talk. uh, Matter of fact, I was kind of uh, glad the first guy mentioned my name. I've forgotten it. I was awake and conscious that I could see those people's marks, not any of which were complimentary. None of them asked me for my autograph. And I didn't care. I didn't care where I was, I didn't care what I was doing, I didn't care what they... I was not in the least embarrassed by that situation. I didn't like them, I was sure they didn't like me, and I just didn't care. I don't remember how I got off that floor that night, I don't remember how I got home that night. That was not unusual for me. But the next morning I remember going down and doing one of those walks around the car where you look and see how many fenders you got left and is there any blood on anything... And I was sick. And then I got to thinking, who were those people? Were they friends of my parents? Were they on the phone this morning telling my mother and dad where their only child was the night before? My God, that was a humiliating thought. Were they friends of the boss? Were they on the phone telling my boss where his East newscaster, Cleveland's Lowell Thomas, was three hours after he got off the air last night? was a degrading thought. Were there any pictures taken? Was I in the Sunday paper this morning? That was a possibility. That was an embarrassing thought. And I don't remember what I did about that embarrassment and humiliation and degradation except to get drunk again that Sunday. I'm sure that's what I did because that's all that's the only solution I had to any problem. Get drunk. Four belts and I was Lowell Thomas again. I could be anybody I wanted. And I'm sure I did that day because I didn't know what else to do with that guilt and that shame. Now, this happened often, incidentally. My wife used to say to me, my God, don't you have any pride. People see you in public. They recognize you. They know you. Don't you have any pride? And do you know that I can't remember what I told her? I can't remember whether I said I did have pride or I didn't have pride. I don't remember, because whatever I told her, it was a lie, and I don't remember it. And I don't, it, I, it was a pretense, and I have forgotten which way I went. Probably different ways on different days, because I couldn't remember my own lies half the time. The other incident happened on an election day. I don't know whether it's true in California or other states, but our bars are closed on election day in Cleveland. You cannot get a drink until about two hours after the polls open. And I knew that. Every drunk knows that. You have to plan ahead uh, for election day. And I went to work that day. Now, I'd been taken off the air. I was no longer doing the 11 o'clock news. I had a very patient boss uh, who put up with me as long as he could on the air and then still didn't fire me, hid me in the basement. He made me a writer. And I used to write stuff like... National Red Cross, weak spots, and uh, Know Your Library, public service announcements, and nothing that anybody paid for. They didn't trust me to write commercials, but I wrote a lot of sustaining and promotional copy. And I was hidden away in the basement with this typewriter. And I went to work that November election day with two pints and a big overcoat in my pockets, and it was pretty warm, even for Cleveland in November, and my wife said when I went out of the door, what's the big overcoat for, and I said, well, the weather in Cleveland is very changeable, you know, it, it could be very cold before I come home then, it was just to hide the bottles, that's all, and I went to work with those two pints, and I had no trouble getting to work, I stopped at the last stop in, which was also my first stop in, in the morning, and a couple of other places on the way downtown, and I finally got to my typewriter. And I banged away at it for a while until about ten o'clock, and I saw people passing my office door on their way out for a coffee break, and I was getting that feeling. The stomach was turning over, and the cold sweats, and the hands were shaking, and I needed a drink, and I knew it. And I couldn't hit the keys on the typewriter anymore, so I got up and went out for my break, and I didn't know where to go. I could not be seen in a bar, and the bars weren't open anyway, and I had the bottles. There they were. I could feel them banging against my hips, but I didn't know where to take them. And our station, our studios, are in the, the Playhouse Square area of Cleveland, and as I walked out, the theaters were opening across the street, and I saw the lights twinkle on that marquee like a welcoming beacon, and I made a beeline for the Palace Theater, and I bought a ticket and went in. And I even sat down and watched the film for a couple of minutes and then headed for the men's room, And I locked myself in the pay toilet, and I drank a pint of booze, and I threw the empty and the brown paper bag in the wastebasket and went back to work. And I worked until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I worked straight through lunch. No reason to go to lunch. The bars were closed, so I worked straight through lunch. I used to work in flurries anyway, If I felt like working at all. I worked hard to get ahead so I could coast or to catch up because I was way behind (laughs) one or the other. And I felt like working that day, so I worked hard, and I wrote a lot of Know Your Library copy, and about two o'clock in the afternoon, I needed a drink again. I I was on about a four-hour feeding schedule. I got, (laughs) got pretty sick after about four hours without one, and I knew now where to go, and I left the station, walked out, and headed across the street. Now, I did not go back to the Palace Theater. I was afraid that the girl in the box office would wonder why I was going to the same movie twice in the same day. And I didn't want her to lose any sleep over that, so I went to a different movie. I was even trying to con a girl in the box office. I never saw her before in my life, you know, but I I was lying to her. And I went to a different movie, and I didn't sit down and watch the film at all. I went immediately to the men's room, locked myself in the pay toilet, drank that other pint, wrapped the bottle in a brown paper bag, threw it in the wastebasket, and went back to work. And I finished out the day until the bars opened and I could get down to some serious drinking. My wife didn't know that I did that. My boss didn't know that I did that. My fellow workers didn't know that I did that. Nobody had to cover for me that day. Nobody had to write my copy. Nobody missed me. I wasn't gone any longer than anybody else in the station who took a normal coffee break. I even fooled the girl in the box office. I got away with that completely, except for one person, me. I knew that I did it, and I was ashamed that I did it. Because I wasn't brought up that way. I wasn't brought up to sit in a pay toilet, drinking booze out of a pint bottle. (laughs) I never thought of myself living that way. A newscaster, yes, but not that life. I always fancied myself a pretty good drinker. You know, the he-man kind of drinker. John Wayne type get drunk and win the war single-handed. Wallace Beery used to do it all the time. He was one of my idols. All those guys in the movies would get drunk and do something marvelous. And I always thought of myself as that kind of a drinker. I was a country club drinker. I could sit there and teach the guy not only how to do his job and properly mix a martini, but how to also properly chill the glass for my delicate taste. I could teach him how to do that. I'd end up out in the car with a bottle of hot vodka from under the front seat, you know, that was almost boiling. But that was part of the show at the country club bar to teach him how to chill my glass. I thought I was a pretty fancy drinker. I always identified with the guy in the back of Esquire in the slick magazine ad who has just climbed a mountain or killed a tiger with his bare hands. And he's now standing in a paneled room in a silk-smoking jacket with a glass of good booze in his right hand, and there's a fire roaring and a dalmatian at his feet and a white bearskin rug, and he's telling a good friend about his accomplishments. That was me.
1: That's
0: the kind of a drinker I was. My sponsor was the same kind, and we have talked often about that ad and tried to project ourselves into it and figure out which one of us would burn a hole in his smoking jacket first. (laughs) Which one of us would throw up on the Dalmatian? (laughs) Which one of us would trip on the white bear-skin rug and fall in the fireplace? (laughs) And we are sure that our discussion of current events would eventually end up in a fistfight over politics, because that's, that's really the kind of drinkers we were. Gentlemen of distinction, the two of us. I'm afraid, even though I thought that's what I was, I will never make gentlemen of distinction until I pick up a copy of Esquire and turn it over and see a picture of a guy sitting in a pay toilet with a pint bottle. difference between those two kinds of humiliations, one public, one private, I think that was the difference, the one other people knew about. And I could face those in a way... I didn't like them, but I I could laugh it off. I could fight back. I could throw up that bravado, that false front where you pretend you're a good sport and laugh at their jokes about you being a drunk and try to pretend it doesn't hurt, but it does. And you know it does. But at least you can fight back somehow. I remember a guy hit me in the back with a big soundproof door one day, accidentally, of course. But instead of saying, excuse me, in a loud voice for the benefit of a lot of other people, In the studio, he said, gee whiz, Jim, I hope I didn't break your flask. And he got a pretty good laugh with that line from uh, many other people in the studio who were also laughing at me. And I laughed, believe it or not, at that crack that day, or pretended to, because I didn't want him to know he had hurt me, and I couldn't let any of them know that. So I threw up the, the false front. And I laughed and pretended that I was amused, and I wasn't. I used to tell jokes about being a drunk, jokes on myself, to be one of the gang. And that seemed to be the topic of conversation at the moment, the fact that I was a drunk and laughable, according to them. So I'd get into the act and tell jokes, too. But it wasn't very funny. But at least I could fight back. I used to go home and pick a fight with my wife. I knew we were going to have one anyway, and I figured I might as well pick the subject tonight.
1: <laughs>
0: but the ones that were the worst, I think, were the kind like that business in the pay toilet, that only I knew about it. And there were many others like that, some of them worse. Many of them. But, and when, when you're the only one that knows, who do you laugh it off to? Who do you lie to? Who do you justify? Who do you rationalize to? You know, how, how do you get rid of it? You can't. There isn't anybody. And you have to carry those around with you all the time. And I was carrying a lot of those around, and it's a heavy load. And I think that's why I remember those personal humiliations, more even than the public ones. They were more important to me. I went through a lot of other phases in my drinking. I got on the patent medicines for a while. My stomach was upset in the morning, and uh, I did not want to drink in the morning. I knew that was a symptom of alcoholism, and I didn't want to take a drink. never occurred to me that needing the drink was the symptom of alcoholism. I thought taking the drink was the symptom, so I was avoiding the symptom by not drinking in the morning. But I was sick. Now, somebody told me that activated charcoal was good for an upset stomach, so I chewed activated charcoal tablets by the handful. They make you throw up gray, and that's about all they do for you. Uh, Pepto-Bismol makes you throw up pink. I learned that. I saw something in a drugstore one day called Emetrol, And I I didn't know what it was, and I read the label and said it was good for morning sickness. And, God, I was sick in the morning, so I drank emetrol for a while. (laughs) I guess some of you ladies know what it is. The funny thing is, it helped a little. (laughs) But it also made me throw up green. None of that worked. And my wife used to catch me. I told you I wasn't a very good liar, and I wasn't. And uh, Pinky uh, is not with me, so I can tell you a story. I can never tell the story when she's around because she says I shouldn't tell it at meetings. But I, I sneak it in once in a while. It's not a true story. But...
1: <laughs> it's
0: so funny about that. All my stories are true, really. Uh, some are truer than others, but they're... <laughs> Again, this one serves a purpose. It illustrates a point about what a lousy liar I was. This is a story of, of a judge. He had no drinking problem necessarily, but every once in a while he'd get a little overserved, and he did at a bar association party one night. And on the way home, he had a little accident and threw up all over his own new blue suit. And he was very embarrassed by that incident, and he had to make up some sort of an excuse. So when he got home, he told his wife he'd pitch, picked up a hitchhiker. And this poor, unfortunate hitchhiker was drunk and, and had become ill, and he had thrown up on his new blue suit. And his wife apparently accepted that story, and he said, Don't you worry, my dear. He said, I took him right downtown, put him in the cell, and I'll have him up from, in front of me tomorrow morning. So the next day, he was in his private chambers, and the phone rang, and it was his wife. And uh, she said, That young man you picked up that got sick all over your new blue suit last night, has he come up before you yet this morning? The judge said, no, but don't you worry, my dear. I'm going to give him 30 days. She said, you better give him 90 days. He crapped in your underwear, too. Oh. could have been any fellow in that story,
1: too.
0: I had about as much success lying to my wife as the judge did. She caught me constantly. Never got away with anything. But anyway, all of this ended up... in, In the last day of August of 1960, I got a telephone call. I had been laid off from my job, finally suspended. Not fired, but suspended. Told not to come back until I could come back sober and give them some indication that I could stay sober. And uh, I got a call from a man that I knew I'd worked with him on numerous occasions. I did not know he was an AA, but he identified himself as an AA to me on the telephone. He said, I understand you. have been laid off at the station, and I denied it. He said, I understand you have a drinking problem. I denied it. He said, do you want to talk to anybody about anything? I said, No. (laughs) and uh, he said okay and hung up but there was another fellow and i can't even tell you how he knew about me but he did and he did not call he came to the house he carried the message in his hand and he came to the house and i was too sick and too weak to fight him i knew him too and i hated him uh the only place i had ever seen him was at a bar and uh downtown Cleveland called Pierre's, where I hung out, hang out, hung out, hanged out. Anyway, I hung out there. And uh, he was a lawyer. I used, he was the guy I thought that invented the phrase shyster lawyer is redundant. I used to call him a shyster all the time, and, an ambulance chaser and stuff, and he used to accuse me of uh, slanting the news, and we didn't, just didn't get along. We used to get into barroom arguments on any subject. We were both authorities on automobiles, football, women movie stars, religious leaders of the Western world. Atomic energy, we knew everything about everything, and we would argue. If he took one side, I took the other purposely. And this is the guy that came waltzing into my bedroom that day. I hadn't seen him for quite a while, and he looked good. He was well-dressed, and he was smiling, and he sat down. And I can remember thinking, when he came in the room, boy, here comes the sermon. I knew he was from AA, and I knew a little bit, I thought about AA, And I thought, here comes the sermon. My friends have been giving me a hard time. Now here's an avowed enemy, and he's really going to lay me out. And of course, he didn't. He surprised me. He started to tell me a little bit about his own drinking. He started to tell me what a rat he was when he drank. Well, I knew that. I'd been telling him that for years. I saw him in action. In fact, I could think of some things he was leaving out. I wasn't even in AA yet, and I was already taking another man's inventory. But he somehow convinced me to go to a place called Rosary Hall. And I thought it was Rosemary Hall. I thought it was named after a woman named Rosemary Hall. I did. I, I called it Rosemary Hall for a long time. I couldn't remember my sponsor's name. I had to write it down on a card and keep it in the, in the table alongside my bed. And I'd see him coming down the hall, and I'd open the drawer and look close closer. i and say, Hi, Ellis. I could not remember his name from one day to the next, but he slapped me in there, and it was a six-day course. When I walked into Rosary Hall, uh, I was ready to go home immediately. uh, There were some big wooden doors, and I walked in there, and they had a couple of religious figurines sitting around, which indicated that I thought I was going to a hospital ward. And here were these figurines and things, and indicating that this was some sort of an institution for Catholic drunks. And I thought, well, that leaves me out on two counts. I'm going home, you know, i I was not ready to admit I was an alcoholic, nor did I want to get into a Catholic institution at that moment. But uh, they offered me a drink. And uh, you know what I did? I refused it. I thought it was some kind of a test. I did. I th- and I didn't want to give the wrong answer. So... I said, no, thank you. I've quit drinking. But the nurse insisted. And I was never one to resist too long when somebody insisted, so I took her drink. And they put me to bed. And uh, I looked forward to the next one. And uh, I was tapered off. and uh, For a while there, I thought I was a newspaper reporter. I was keeping some notes. And uh, I was going to write an expose of Sister Ignatia. I got it through my mind that this was some sort of a racket, that Sister Ignatia was not a real nun, that this was, you know, every once in a while you you hear about a reporter who gets himself checked into a mental institution or a jail or something so he can write an expose about how he was really treated. Well, that's what I was going to do. I was going to sell my story to Reader's Digest so my six days in Rosary Hall wouldn't be a total loss and expose Sister Ignatia and her racket that she had running up here. I even kept notes. I sometimes wish I had the notes and I could see them now, and then other times I'm very glad I don't have those notes and that I have never seen them. For a couple of days, I thought I was on a boat, and I kept asking people how long they'd been aboard, which way's the galley. (laughs) Where's the head, buddy? You know, stuff like nautical talk. And I don't know where I got it. I'd never been on a boat in my life. I, I took the Aquarama steamer cruise from Cleveland to Detroit once, and I was drunk the whole time. And I'm sure I didn't pick up any nautical vocabulary. And it was the only time I'd ever been on a boat. But I thought I was on an ocean liner at Rosary Hall. I had my last drink on September 4th, 1960, up to this point. And uh, it was uh, in a paper cup. I'll never forget it. It was old Bardwell and Peraldehyde. And uh, the nurse was the bartender. And I'll even remember her toast. She handed me that paper cup and she said, that's all you get, buddy. And I hope she's right. I tried to get out of Rosary Hall that night. I wanted to go home. My sponsor came down and talked to me. He finally let me talk to my wife on the phone. He said, if Pinky says you can go home, I'll let you go. And what I didn't know was my wife was at his house. And knew why he had come downtown. The whole family knew I was throwing a jerry down there, and he had set this all up and told them that he was going to let me talk to him, and there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell. She was going to tell me I could come home, but I didn't know that, and I was trying to convince her that I was real sober and straight and ready to get out of there, and I couldn't hear her very well, and so I suddenly complained to her about the lousy connection on the ship-to-shore phone, and... And for some reason, she didn't understand that reference. She she was not aware that I was on a boat. And she said, Jim, I think you better try that one more day down there. So I went to bed, very reluctantly agreeing to stay one more day. And in the middle of the night, I heard noises in the parking lot across the street. So I got up and looked out the window. And I can't tell you exactly what was going on out there, but it was a grim scene. There were people coming and going on motorcycles and in automobiles. Uh, Quite a variety of people, uh, all ages, all colors, all sexes. And they were all armed with guns and knives and chains, and they were killing each other. And there was a great deal of bloodshed in the parking lot across from St. Vincent Charity Hospital that night. And I watched it all night. I tried to call the police and discovered it was very difficult to get a line out of Rosary Hall. And the nurse wouldn't help me. And the rest of the fellows wouldn't look. I was in a ward with 15 other guys, and none of them would look. <laughs> I'd had some experience doing play-by-play sports many years ago, so I did a running blow-by-blow description of the rumble in the parking lot. <laughs> and there was only one guy, a fellow from Warren, who told me later that he knew I was in D.T.'s, but it sounded so good he got up and looked anyway. <laughs> and... And uh, this gave him a problem, too, because he was due to go home the next day, and he didn't want to get caught looking out my window. And they gave me something in the morning. I don't know what. I thought they were trying to kill me, whatever it was. But I went to sleep, and I woke up later in the afternoon, and I was alone in the room. Everybody else had gone to dinner, and there was no one in the room but a nurse and me. And when I came to, she talked to me a little bit, very quietly, and I told her about what I had seen out the window, and she said, yes, I heard about it from the night nurse. And she apparently didn't believe that had really happened. And I got up, went over and looked out the window to show her the blood in the street, because I was sure it would be there, but it wasn't, of course. And I came back and sat on the bed and I said, You mean it wasn't really there? And she said, What do you think, Jim? And I got up and walked out of the room. And you know, nobody had asked me what I thought for a long time. Everybody had been telling me what they thought in no uncertain terms. They'd been telling me what they thought. But nobody asked me what I thought for a long time. And I lay back on the bed and I remember staring up at the ceiling. The soundproof stuff, a white ceiling with holes in it. I'll never forget that ceiling. And I laid there, and I thought about where I was, and I knew now. I was on a boat, and I wasn't a reporter. I knew where I was, and I knew why I was there. I also knew somehow that day what kind of a father I had been to my seven-year-old daughter. I knew that day what kind of a husband I had been. I knew what kind of a worker I had been, what kind of a neighbor I had been, what kind of a man I had become. I didn't like it. I sure didn't like any of it. But I knew. And I had not, at that point, once opened the big book, nor had I tried to read any of the literature of AA. I was in with my back. I was going to get out of there and handle it myself. I still didn't need these people. But that evening, I picked up the big book, and I tried to read some of the literature, and I couldn't understand it. I'd get to the end of a sentence, and there'd be a period, and I wouldn't have the slightest idea what that sentence said. And I remember how frustrating it was. I'd think, my God, that's written in English, and you can read English. It starts with a capital letter, and it ends with a period. It's a sentence. It says something, and I'd read it again, and I still wouldn't know what it said. But I tried to know, and I think that made a difference. And they took me home from Rosary Hall. My sponsor came and got me the next day. And I remember walking out through those big wooden doors, and there was a sign over the door which said, Take hope, all ye who leave here. And I thought to myself, that's all I have is a little bit of hope. Some guys I don't even know have told me that I can get sober, stay sober, be happy sober, if I want to. And I hope to hell they know what they're talking about. Because I didn't know how to do it. I started to go to meetings right away. I liked them. I wanted to sneak into the first couple, of course. I wanted to wear a mask. I didn't want anybody to recognize the big famous television star. going to a meeting. How does that grab you? I was laying on the floor of a restaurant in downtown Cleveland, dead drunk paralyzed, couldn't move with people stepping over me, calling me by name, and didn't care. And a few months later, I was embarrassed to walk into a church sober. If that isn't insanity, I don't know what is, but that's the way I felt. But I didn't feel that way along, because that hand was out, and the warm feelings were at that meeting, and I felt welcome there, and I started to go. And I went a lot. I uh, remember hearing a man one night talk about a kid that lived on a farm... And one day they put a circus poster up on the barn, and he had never seen a circus. The kid worked on the farm all his life, had never seen anything. He'd never been off the farm. And he asked his father what it was, and there was a picture of a, an elephant and a clown and a pretty lady on a horse. And his father explained to him that was a circus. And he said, You've been working hard on the farm, and I have 50 cents to spare, and you'll have to walk to town. But I'll give you the 50 cents, and you can go to the circus. And the little boy took off down the road. For five miles he walked, and he got to the town, and he heard music in the street. And he sat down on the curb, and he watched the circus parade go by. And there was the elephant, and there was the clown, and there was the pretty lady on a horse. And when one of the clowns walked by him with a big, tall silk hat, he tipped it to this young man. And the young man threw his 50 cents in the clown's hat. And when the parade had gone around the corner, the little boy got up and walked five miles back to the farm. And he told his father he had seen the circus. He hadn't. All he had seen was the circus parade. He never got inside the big tent. He never saw the big show. But he went back and told his father he had seen the circus because he didn't know he hadn't. He had seen what was on the poster, what was advertised. But he still hadn't seen the big show, and he didn't even know what he missed. And one of my sponsors said to me, don't be like that kid. That's a sad story. Don't be a sad story in AA. Just don't just go with the advertising, what they tell you it's going to do for you. Don't just come see the parade and throw 50 cents in the hat once a week. He says, you get in it. Get in that big tent. Get in the big show. Get in it all the way. See the whole thing. Come often. Do what you can. Get active. Let it surround you. Let it consume you like alcohol consumed you. And then you'll see the really big show. Get in the inner circle. Get in it with both feet. Don't just see the parade pass you by. I've seen guys do that. They're not around too long. The parade won't hold you. It's getting in it all the way. That's what will hold you. And that's what I tried to do. Because I was doing everything that they told me to do in those days. I tried to do everything they told me to do, and they weren't all easy things. I remember one night, there was a man in my home group. He's gone now. He was a great AA and a great speaker. Some of you may have heard him around the country. His name was Howard Benhoff. And Howard, one day at a meeting, handed me a push broom after the meeting. I wasn't sober very long, and I thought I was still a pretty big-shot television announcer, and I frankly thought the job of pushing that broom was somewhat beneath me. I was perfectly willing to come in here and be an orator, or help you rewrite the big book, or straighten out some of those major problems, but sweeping the floor did not seem to be my calling. But Howard, when he handed you a broom, you knew what to do with it. Uh, (laughs) So I didn't question it, I just pushed. And as I was pushing this broom, I looked over and my wife was sitting there talking to Howard and his wife, and they were watching me and laughing. (laughs) And I didn't think it was too funny. And as I pushed my way over near them, I said something pleasant, like, What the hell's so funny? (laughs) And my wife said, I was just telling the Benhoffs that it was no more than six weeks ago that I told you if you didn't quit drinking you'd end up pushing a broom someplace. And and, you know, she said that we had this big battle, and I remember her saying that, you big shot, you'll end up pushing a broom. And I'd been sober four weeks or something like that, and my reward was Howard's push broom. And it struck me funny, and I laughed. My wife and I laughed together at something. We had not done that for a long, long time. We weren't laughing the night she said it originally, I'll tell you. And we hadn't laughed together for a long, long time. The most alien, foreign thing they told me to do when I came to AA was to pray. I didn't know how. I had never prayed in my life, other than the phony kind, God, get me out of this, and I'll never take another drink as long as I live. I said that many times. Never meant it. Didn't think anybody heard it anyway. Didn't make any difference whether I meant it or not, as far as I was concerned. I had never had any spiritual training or religious direction, nothing. And when they told me I had to pray, I didn't know how. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to do it, how to go about it. I was ashamed to get down on my knees, even with nobody to see me or to hear me. And I didn't really think it would work. I thought it was like talking to the wall or talking to the four winds. And I got the feeling one day, well, so what? If talking to the wall keeps you sober, then I'll talk to the wall. Or if talking to the four winds will keep me sober, then I'll talk to the four winds. If guys want me to do that, I'll do it. But I was always a, a show-me type. I'm the kind of guy who said, well, if I'm going to ask for something, I want to see something. I want to see it or hear it or feel it or touch it or accepting nebulous philosophies floating around in space. You know, I wanted it. Something concrete. And strangely enough, I started to get them. I I didn't know any formal prayer, so I made one up. I remember I, I had trouble. I didn't know the Lord's Prayer when I came to AA. And I had to, I was ashamed to admit that. And I had to stand next to somebody and watch them, watch their lips, to follow them correctly, because I didn't know it by heart. And I heard another man say that at a meeting. He too came to AA the same way. And he admitted that at a meeting one night. And you know, I was so ashamed of that that I didn't even get up later and tell him that I felt the same way, that he had a friend in the audience. Somebody who felt the same way he did. I was so ashamed I couldn't even admit it to him. I blew it this morning. I was standing next to Bruce's wife holding her hand and I got to thinking about what Mary had said and I was so wrapped up in my own thoughts I I hope she didn't notice because I blew the Lord's Prayer this morning at the end of the meeting. Because I was thinking about myself, I guess. But I didn't know how to pray. So I just, I did that thing you hear about once, and I just talked to God. And I usually did it when I was shaving in the morning. For some reason, I looking at myself in the mirror and I would pray. That may not be the accepted form, but it seems to have worked for me because I got answers. And I can't give you a blow by blow description of 14 years of sobriety, but again, I'd like to tell you a couple of incidents. Shortly after I came into the program, in about two years, I started a new kind of television show for me. I got off the news show, and I started to do a travel and adventure show. Many of you know the the Linkers and Bill Burrett and Jack Douglas and Colonel Craig and all of those people uh, out in this area. I do or have done, the past 12 years, a similar show in Cleveland, and it meant a lot of travel for me and a lot of wonderful experiences. And The first trip that I had to take as a result of doing that show was my first trip away from my home group and my sponsor and everybody that I depended on so much. And travel was always bad for me. I couldn't get from Cleveland to Meadville, Pennsylvania, sober. And all of a sudden they told me I was going around the world, around the world, to make a film, to shoot a film for the television station. And I ended up in Hong Kong on that trip. And I was thinking about drinking. I hadn't taken one. I hadn't bought one. But I was thinking about it. And the thought that was going through my mind was, if I took a drink, who would know? My sponsor wouldn't know. You know, my wife wouldn't know. Even if I got drunk, I could get sober by the time I got home. Who would know? Well, I know now how foolish that was. I would have known. God, how I would have known. I remember waking up in the middle of the night with those dreams, you know, and that horrible feeling when you wake up after dreaming that you took a drink that horrible feeling i would have had that if i had taken a drink i didn't but i had a 21 year old chinese kid with me who was uh, my guide in hong kong and we were at lunch one day and he said he ordered a beer with his lunch and i ordered a coke sort of automatically and he said i noticed you didn't drink at dinner last night did you and i said no He said, don't you drink at all? And I said, no. He said, did you ever drink? And I said, yeah, I used to drink quite a bit. That's why I don't drink at all anymore. And he said, oh, you must be an AA. And I said, yes, I am. How do you know about AA? See, I'd looked AA up in the World Directory before I left, and at that time, out of 4 million people in Hong Kong, there were 10 AAs, 10 out of 4 million people there were two groups of four each, one in Victoria, one in Kowloon, and two guys who listed themselves as independents. Those were the only listings in the book that year. And I said to this kid, how do you know about AA? And he said, we learned about it at Hong Kong University in our textbook. He said, they taught us what a wonderful job AA does for problem drinkers all over the world. He said, you know, I wish my father had had AA. And then he started to tell me his father's story, and he told me his whole life. He was a silk salesman from Shantung Province, and He traveled the Orient, and he became an alcoholic, and he died. And the family knew what killed him. They said something else on the death certificate, but they knew what had killed him. And they also knew there was something called AA that might have saved his life, that might have helped if they had had it in Hong Kong at that time. And he said, how grateful you must be for your sobriety. He said, those exact words... And I'd be willing to bet you a million dollars those words did not come out of that textbook at Hong Kong University. That's AA talk. That's not textbook talk. That kid sat across the table from me and gave me the most beautiful lead I ever heard and was talking AA to me. He said, how lucky you are. You're from a city that has AA. We had At that time, we had 160 meetings a week in Cleveland. We now have over 200 a week in Cleveland. I can't walk down Euclid Avenue without some bus driver yelling, take it easy at me. Or one day at a time, Jim, you know, from the cop on the corner. All of that contact, all of those friends, all of the... No farther away from me than the telephone and the dialing of a number. And here was a kid halfway around the world pushing. He said that his father, wishing his father had one man like me to talk to, that I might have saved his father's life and how lucky I was. Well, I'll tell you, I went home, back to my hotel that day, feeling nine feet tall, and it occurred to me that I had said my prayer that morning. I asked for help, and I got it. I got it out of the mouth of a 21-year-old Chinese kid who'd never been to an AA meeting in his life, but had the right words. And AA words at that. A couple of years ago, my daughter and I took the Colorado River trip down the Grand Canyon in the rubber rafts. Marvelous trip. There were 18 northern Ohio. I knew almost all of them personally. There was one woman that I did not know. She was a nurse from New York City who had booked on with another friend. And we were sitting around a campfire down in the Grand Canyon one night, talking about just things in general. And the subject of a spiritual experience came up because many felt that this trip was a spiritual experience and they were not speaking in any AA reference at all but suddenly this nurse from new york who i didn't sight of me poked me in the ribs and she said you can't beat old hp can you i said who's hp she said higher power i said what made you say that to me She said, I don't know, there's just something about the way you talk. I had the feeling you... I said, what group are you in? She said, I'm Al-Anon in New York. We had many a meeting down the Colorado River the rest of that week. It's a good thing my daughter was with me, or the rest of the group would have thought we had a little something going, because we A lot after that. But there it was. You know, we didn't see a man-made building for a week, but we saw each other every day, because we needed each other. ...on that trip. And there we were. The first time this happened to me, that I can recall this spectacular kind of, quote, coincidence, unquote. I got back to work and my boss asked me to go to a party that I didn't want to go to. It was a a press-type thing with a lot of newspaper people and radio and TV people. I'd only been sober two months, three months maybe... It was around Christmas time, and it was a drunken brawl. It was an annual traditional thing, and I knew it. It was an excuse for an afternoon cocktail party, and it was always around the toasts with sparkling burgundy, and the newspaper guys zapped the radio and TV guys and vice versa with the toasts. They were nasty toasts, and whoever got in the, the biggest barb of the year won the competition, and everybody got very drunk, and I did not want to go to that party. I wasn't afraid that I'd drink, but I was afraid I would be embarrassed by not drinking that everybody would end up with a glass of sparkling burgundy and they'd drink theirs and there would be mine sitting there like a red neon sign blinking on and off pointing at the guy with a problem and, you know, everybody would say he's not sociable and all that. And that they would really blast me with their toasts. So, my boss insisted that I go to this party and I was trying to be nice to him at the time, of course, to make amends. So, I went to his party and I ate lunch. It was the first time I ever ate lunch at that lunch. And wasn't bad. And then they poured the burgundy. And as they came down the line, there were two waiters, and the one wiped out the glass with a towel, a little gesture, and he'd turn it right side up, squish it out, and the other guy with the bottle would fill it up right to the brim without spilling a drop. They were very professional. They got to me, and the guy turned my glass up and squished it out, and the fellow with the bottle turned it back upside down and filled up the next one. The bottle went by me so fast I couldn't even read the label on it.
1: Just...
0: And I toasted with my water glass, and nobody noticed. Nobody said anything. They were very kind to me in the toasts. They kidded me about the news show, but not about drinking or not drinking. I worried for two weeks about that incident, and it was gone in an instant. You see, I had not yet learned that it's never embarrassing to be sober. Never.
1: <laughs> never. I, uh...
0: I have done embarrassing things sober, but sobriety itself has never once been embarrassing to me. I have never heard anybody at a cocktail party in my presence poke the guy next to him and say, Hey, look at Doney, man, is he sober tonight? (laughs) But I didn't know that yet. But I learned it that night, and I found the waiter later. And I said, Did my boss tell you to do that? And he said, Hell no, I saw you at Rosary Hall. And incidentally, uh, I saw that waiter last week. He is now the manager of the Piazza restaurant at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. He's done very well. And uh, I saw Bob last week, and we sat for a while and talked about that incident. And he he was uh, a part of several other stories, uh, too, involving those, quote, coincidence, unquote, that I just don't believe are coincidence anymore. They happen too often. They happen too much. They're too packed. I'm the guy that said, show me something, and boy, he does. He shows me something, something I can hear, something I can see, something I can feel. The things that I really wanted, I get. I heard about this Christmas party later and how, what a coincidence it was, you know, that I drew an AA waiter and he went right down my throat. So said, what the hell do you mean coincidence? I said, did you say your prayer? I said, yes. He said, what do you ask for when you pray? He said, well, I usually say I'm Jim Doney, and I'm an alcoholic, and I would like to stay sober today, and I will do my best. But help me if it gets difficult. Show me the way if I get lost. He said, all right, you asked for help, and you got help. What the hell's so coincidental about that? Because you haven't been paying attention at the meetings. That's what we've been telling you. That's how it works. You go to a meeting... You say, look around, a bunch of people sitting there smiling, and you say, hey, it works. And they say, yeah, we know. It works for us, too. And the next day you get up and you say the prayer, and you get the help. And before you go to bed, you thank God for it. And that's another day of sobriety. And it's just that simple. They only promised me one thing when I came to AA. My sponsor said, you will get sobriety if you want it. That's all. You won't get your job back. Your wife may not love you anymore. Your kid may not like you. You may not get a Cadillac, but you can get sobriety if you want it, one day at a time. And he was right. That's the only reward. But there have been so many results since then of that sobriety, so many that I can't recount all of them. I know I remember an incident after I was sober a year in which my seven-year-old daughter was sitting on my lap and reached over and put her arm around my neck and gave me a hug and got down and walked away. Now, it's not unusual for a father to get a hug from a seven-year-old daughter, is it? It was then. It was the first hug I ever got from my daughter, and I'll never forget it. I remember shaking hands with my father one day, who had a little something extra in the grip, a little something, a little look in his eye or warmth, something. I don't know what it was exactly, but it reflected, I think, some pride in his only son for the first time for a long time I'll never forget that handshake I remember things my mother has said to me in the last 14 years I remember things my wife has said to me somebody said to her one night you must have discovered the same old Jim that you married now that he's sober and she said no this is a whole new man he was drinking when I married him I never knew this Jim before Never knew this one, a whole new man. And she put her arm around my waist and gave me a little hug, and she said, I like this one. I'll never forget that. And I thought to myself, have I changed that much that she thinks of me as a whole new man? Apparently, although it didn't seem that way to me. And when those little incidents happened, I remember another story that a man around Cleveland used to tell about a cobbler who lived a good life all his life, never hurt anybody, never did anything wrong. He never made much money, he just made shoes and helped people that way, and made little enough to live on. And he died. And he went to heaven, and he stood face to face with God. And they talked about his life. And God said, you lived a very good life, and you're to be commended. But he said, there was something always bothering you, a little frustration of some kind. What was that? And the man said, well, I believed all my life. But he said, I always wanted just one little concrete thing. I wanted to hear your voice once. I wanted to see your face once. I wanted to feel your touch just once for reassurance. And God said, do you remember the day you were in your shop and there was a little girl standing out in the snow and her sandals were ragged and her feet were cold and you took her in and you made her a new pair of shoes and when she walked out she didn't know what to say so she just turned and smiled at you and the cobbler said, yeah, I remember that. He said, do you remember the day the old man came in and wanted some money because he was hungry and you didn't have any money but you shared your lunch with him? And when he left, there were tears in his eyes, and he stood and shook hands with you before he walked out. And the cobbler said, yeah, I remember that. He said, do you remember the day the little old lady was in your shop? And she was lost and confused and bewildered, and you gave her some tea, and you calmed her down and asked her some questions and finally found her son and called him, and he came and got her. And when she walked out the door, she stopped and turned, and she said, bless you, my son. Do you remember that? The cobbler said, yes, I remember that. He said, all right. The little girl's smile was my smile. And the old man's handshake was my touch. And the little old lady's, bless you, my son, was my voice. I was with you all the time. You just didn't notice me. Well, when my little girl puts her arm around my neck and gives me a hug, and when my father touches my hand with that little extra look in his eye, and when my wife and my mother... Say those sweet words about me now. If I want to interpret that as a conscious contact with God, I do. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to agree with me. You can say I'm not right, but you can't say I'm wrong because I'm sober. And that's the way I interpret those things. I think he is with me all the time. And unlike the cobbler, I want to notice. I want to be aware. You have helped so much to make me aware this weekend of so many things for which I am so grateful. I want to leave you with one last little slogan that I made up myself, and I hope that uh, Father Joe uh, isn't right when he says it, uh, having a mortal sin. Uh, My little slogan is easy for me to remember. It's look in, look up, and look out. Uh, It's only six words, and each little for different things. When I came here, they said, look into AA. And I did. I investigated a little bit and found out what it was all about, and I liked it. And then after I was in, they said, look into yourself. And that was not so much fun. I didn't like doing that much. But I realized I had to do it. A searching and fearless moral inventory is not easy. But I did. And I have to keep doing that, I have discovered, too. They said, there are people here you can look up to examples. And there were marvelous people to look up to. And they taught me a way that I could look up in a much broader sense, in a spiritual way. My own way. They allowed me the freedom to do it my own way. The only atmosphere, I think, under which I could do it. But they pointed the way and showed me how to look up in a truly spiritual sense. And they said, you have to look out for the other guy. And when you look out for him, you try to carry the message and do what you can. And look out for him who still suffers. And I think we look out for each other in other ways, too. We become the kind of people who are more conscious of other people and their problems, whether they're alcoholic or not, or considerate of people. I know when we're riding around and some of my sponsor finds a a parking space or somebody will stop and let us out into a busy street, he always smiles and waves and says, must be a 10-year man. He assumes anybody that considerates an AA. And, he... and he's probably right most of the time. But we do look out for the other guy. And the other meaning of look out is obvious, I think. When somebody else look out, you know what they mean. It's a danger sign. And it doesn't mean just look out for the first drink. To me, it means that, of course. But it means look out for a lot of other things that I have to be careful of. That's so why I have to take a daily inventory. I know the things. I have to look for things, and I know my things, and I have to be careful of them. And all of this results in spiritual experience, the whole experience, is 14 and a half years of spiritual experience. Not thunder and lightning, and I've never heard angels' voices, and God's never talked to me in a, a voice that I could understand, as far as I know. They're not big, dramatic things. It's not instant fulfillment. It's not the kind of thing that leads to a great crusade. It's just quiet little things that lead to a good night's sleep. And I love it. I love every day that I have in it. I want to close with something that I picked up at a meeting. Right after I came into the program, I've carried a copy of it in my pocket ever since, and I didn't even know why for a long time. I liked it, sort of, but I didn't really understand it. And I have to tell you before I read it that I lost two very close friends as a result of alcoholism. One was the best man at my wedding, who died of suicide at the age of 32 in a flop house in Miami, Florida? And we'd been lifelong friends. The other was another high school friend who died after a slip and a binge, died in Rosary Hall in DTs when he died, physically worn out, shot at the age of 35. I used to be the one who asked, Why me? Why a drunk? Why me? Why am I alive? Because I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey, that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. I was given life, that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I am among all men, most richly blessed. Thank you.